Cricket fans, listen up. All Crick is revolutionizing the way you follow the game. Get ready for the fastest live scores, the widest cricket coverage and the most accurate match predictions. Don't settle for anything less than the best. Download All Crick now and elevate your cricket experience to new heights. Check out allcrick.com for more details. Namaste Jaihind, you're watching or listening to another edition of the ANI podcast with Smita Prakash. My guest today is the American diplomat Richard Rahul Verma. Rich Verma as he's popularly known has served as the US ambassador to India from 2014 to 2017 and currently he serves as the deputy secretary of state for management and resources. He's the first person of Indian descent to hold the position of American ambassador to India. Rich Verma also served as the chief legal officer and head of global public policy at Mastercard from 2020 to 2023. Rich Verma is currently on a visit to India, Sri Lanka and Maldives to strengthen cooperation between the US and each of the three countries in the Indo-Pacific region. Thank you Ambassador Verma for being part of the podcast. Thank you. Uh very glad to have you here uh, on the sidelines of the Raisina dialogue. Um Great to be here. Great to be back in India. In New Delhi, right? In New Delhi. Yeah. yeah. uh good to see you back and uh so you go into election mode your country goes into election mode india goes into election mode what is the bandwidth in dc now for uh bilateral relationship um to take it forward does everything go into a holding pattern in an election year oh definitely not um first of all thank you thank you for having me here and i i would just say uh we are actually redoubling our efforts uh on the us india relationship and and you see that in the number of activities and just the way the president talks about the relationship of course the state visit last year and you know i'm here because i wanted to let people know i've really never seen the relationship as strong and robust as diverse as it is today i just look at the number of bilateral dialogues we have coming up the number of really interesting initiatives coming up from in the defense area from emerging technologies to clean energy health so much more and we can talk about this we've broken every record that we keep in mm. terms of trade and and defense mm. and people to people ties visas issued that will continue election year or not an election year we don't have the luxury of kind of not engaging with the rest of the world i think the world expects our leadership and i think this relationship is too important i'd also say this relationship has seen gains uh really i use the year 2000 as the starting point when president clinton came because before that we had a up and down history as i think most people know but if i look at the last 24 years you know start of this century with that visit we've had sustained gains in every category and we've had it through republican and democratic administrations we've had it through two parties here and so elections are super important but i think the relationship has has a certain durability to it and uh that will continue and so we're excited about the direction of the relationship regardless of what might be happening in in either country i'm going to come to what all we are doing now yeah. uh, india and the us but first i want to pick on the point that you spoke about which yeah. is uh, you pick 
2000, the year 2000. And you say that that's where the upward trajectory started and right. during, you know, uh, President Clinton's era. Um, I want to come to the point where you came in in 2014. That mm. was the real rock bottom low. Uh, the Divyani Khobargade case had happened. I was happened. hoping it wasn't because I came here. <laughs> right. Yeah. You came in during that period where, right. where things looked... In you know, I, it it was almost like back to the 70s uh, during the Cold War era when things had gone bad. And if you remember, there were those uh, in uh, in uh, that area near the embassy, the boulders had been put in, yeah. and it was in it was in a very bad position. And you came in then. What was the brief that uh, President Obama had given you when you were sent in here? Well, he he really cares about this relationship. Cared about the relationship. President Biden uh, cared about the relationship, but. I guess I would, um, you know, I, I remember the period very well, obviously. But even though we had this incident with the Indian diplomat, uh, there was still a lot going on in the relationship. We still had all the defense exercises. We still had all the companies uh, doing trade. Yes, we had a dispute and a disagreement. I think one of the takeaways from that experience was the ability to continue on while you have disagreements, and that's what mature um, relationships are all about. The brief from President Obama was to go out and continue to build and deepen this relationship. He, he was a huge believer in it. But I can go back to when I was a Senate staffer in the Senate Leadership Office, and there was a chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee named Joe Biden from Delaware, who in the year 2002 said, if the U.S. and India are the closest friends and partners in the year 2020, the world will be a safer and more prosperous place. Joe Biden had that vision over 20 years ago. And again, I, I've worked on this relationship for a long time, and that was when a Republican administration, uh, the Bush administration, came in and briefed us on U.S.-India civil nuclear deal. Hmm. We went into a rare classified session of the U.S. Senate, which I will never forget. And the person leading the debate uh, on the Democratic side was then Senator Biden to say why India should have this carve out in the international nuclear framework to allow the civil nuclear deal to go forward. So we've, one, I've worked on the relationship for a while, but two, whether it was um, President Obama during his term or whether it was uh, Senator Biden or whether it was President Clinton or President Bush, we've seen this kind of commitment to the relationship because we know how important these large democratic powers are coming together to do good things for the broader international community. What does that mean? Upholding peaceful rule of law, peaceful resolution of disputes, the rules-based order that we've come to, to live by and so many people have benefited by. U.S. and India can do a lot to preserve and protect that. Uh, two points I want to talk about. One is that, you know, uh, whenever we talk about uh, India-U.S. relations, everybody sees the watershed moment is when uh, President Bush invested so much of capital on the civilian nuclear deal. But you bring in uh, the fact that there was backroom uh, activity happening with the in, uh, the caucus, with the Democrat caucus and uh, with President, uh, well, then Senator Biden, who was also uh, working and briefed, uh, I believe, 
uh, President Bush on this issue. Uh, so that was interesting, uh, what you said. Uh, the second point is about, you know, the shared values that you talk about. Um, one has often seen that whenever there's a state visit, uh, when uh, President Biden came in last year or when Prime Minister Modi went, there's always this talk about shared values. But it seems like that term is used by diplomats. But w the the think tanks, the media, when they report on these visits or on, on, on interactions, it's more about shared interests, transactional relationship. So where does the where does this truth really lie? Oh, this is an easy one for me. I, I don't think there's any question, and anyone who um, asserts that we don't have shared values, I think, doesn't actually appreciate the history. And, and not the history going back 20 years. I mean the history going back decades and decades. You know, our our great writers and philosophers over uh, 150 years uh, have been sharing the ideas about post-colonial uh, independence, about the struggle for justice, about civil rights, about equality, about democracy. And that is the foundation. There's a reason why there's nearly 5 million uh, Americans of, of Indian and South Asian descent in the United States. We are drawn together in so many ways we are not just a transactional uh, buyer-seller relationship. This is not just about interests. Of course, every country has interests, and those countries pursue those interests. Mm. We are uniquely situated. Uh, I think of my own father, who was who came to this uh, came to the United States in 1963 after living through a very tumultuous time here in India, uh, very active in the Indian independence movement and became a writer of South Asian literature. And he would correspond with famous writers here, Malkarajana and others, about post-colonial issues, about independence, about justice. Uh, I think of what uh, Mahatma Gandhi wrote to President Roosevelt in the early 1900s, which was, thank you for giving me the writings of Henry David Thoreau. I think about Gandhi being influenced, uh, I'm sorry, I think about Martin Luther King being influenced by Gandhi. I could give you dozens and dozens of example, examples where our values form the bedrock and the foundation of this relationship. And it's evident today. And that's what makes this relationship special and different. And ultimately, that's what we have to stay true to. All of the other activities on top of it are important, but we can never lose sight of that foundation that is the glue that holds us together but what happens when uh, when policymakers in in DC keep reading about uh, illiberal so-called illiberal government being in power in New Delhi with not being in uh, on the same page as a liberal democracy with uh, and liberal values that United States has so don't policymakers get influenced when uh, when those articles come out? Sure. I mean, look, we have big, noisy democracies in both capitals. I've certainly lived here and seen plenty of um, hmm. critiques about the United States. I've seen critiques in the United States about India. And, and look, I think that's what having a free press is about. And I also think when we have differences, we sit down and we address them. It is in our collective interest to support civil society. It is in our co collective interest to support a free press. It is in our collective interest to support democratic aspirations of minority communities and to be more inclusive. That's what our leaders talk about when they get together. That model helps, frankly, push back against 
the authoritarian and autocratic vision of the world, which does exist mm-hmm. and is, um, is the counter narrative. And we have to stand up against that. That's why I'm so um, vested in this relationship and so, frankly, encouraged by what we can do together. You've witnessed that relationship uh, in various stages. Right. When you were in D.C., when you were here. In fact, when you were here, um, there was a change of guard in New Delhi. Um, Prime Minister, uh, Chief Minister Modi becomes Prime Minister Modi. Uh, a man who, was, who had been rejected a visa by the U.S. suddenly becomes Prime Minister now. How did you maneuver the relationship? I didn't have to do any maneuvering. I mean, I think, look, I so uh, appreciate that President Obama and Prime Minister Modi, right out of the gate, I think September of 2014, got together and, uh, you know, it was their collective handshake about trying to move this relationship forward. They saw the huge advantages. They met, I think, nine times during your tenure, if I'm not mistaken. At least, if not a dozen. And we had three summits. Uh, The Prime Minister addressed the Congress. President Obama was here for uh, Republic Day. I mean, and each of those visits was uh, so transformative because Mm it actually generated a set of work and initiatives Mm -hmm. that would never have been possible. I give Mm -hmm. you one important example, the Paris Climate Agreement. Right. We were stuck. Hmm. This was a big international uh, agreement that no one thought was possible. You know what made it possible is a U.S. head of state and an Indian head of state sitting down with each other, understanding each other's position. And for the first time, we saw we saw what is possible Hmm. on the international framework of how to actually change the outcome on mat- on issues that matter, climate change matters. Now we, of course, have pandemic uh, and global health issues to deal with, and I think that's an important area of work. We have cybersecurity and cyber defense. That's an important area of work. So we saw what's possible, and so I didn't have to maneuver mm-hmm. anything. I just had to, frankly, follow in the in the wake of all the activity. <laughs> between these two heads of state who knew the value in the relationship. You, uh, as ambassador, you, uh, I think you were the first ambassador to have toured all 28 states. Yes. What was your takeaway after those? uh, You know, I have to get to the present, but I just can't resist asking about (laughs) this. What happened in those? What was your takeaway? Yeah, so uh, look, I I got some um, great advice from uh, Ambassador Sandhu, who... uh, Indian ambassador to the United States, and then the deputy chief of mission at the time, he said, do me a favor, make sure you spend some time, not just in New Delhi, but but going around the country. And I wanted to do that anyway. I'm, I didn't set out to try to go to every um, state in India, but we were traveling so much. Mm. By 14, 15 months into it, I think we had been to 16 or 17, 18 states. And the team said, look, we, you should really get to all of them. What I found was this incredibly vibrant, exciting diversity within the country, diversity of thought, diversity of background, experience, uh, innovative, uh, just very liberating and inspiring to get out of the capital city. Secondly, I saw Americans uh, all over doing incredible work. Mm. Uh, I saw college students. I saw retirees. I saw people who were coming to share 
I remember uh, going to various projects that were having a real impact, whether it was solar-powered lighting for cricket bat makers uh, who had to do this job on the side of highways and they didn't have electricity or lights, or whether it was people working on ending tuberculosis in parts of the country. I, and so I had a different appreciation for the contribution that our country was making at the citizen-to-citizen -citizen, um, level. Uh, and I also was able to get out and tell our story, mm. you know, public diplomacy. It really matters. So what was the U.S. doing? Why was the relationship important? And frankly, I got to go back to some of those places um, that my own family was from. I saw where my mom... Jalander. Yes, but I saw where my mother and grandmother settled after partition. I saw where my dad uh, went to school. I saw where my mom and grandmother taught. Mm. Um, and I will say to this day, probably one of the most inspiring experiences I had uh, really over the last two or three decades, was going back to that school, which is in an impoverished area of Jalandhar, which still exists today. And now 70 and 80-year-old women coming out to tell me that without my grandmother and mother, they would not be there today, that they told them about the importance of education and studying and, and learning. And, and that was hugely impactful uh, for me. Um you had a very successful tenure uh, as ambassador. But why? where does India come in the pecking order for the Biden administration? Why was there no ambassador for two years here? You mean after that yes. period? Look, I think this gets... There was in, in between, of course, there was a charge d'affaires. Yeah, look, I think this gets into our, you know, Senate confirmation process, change in administrations. We have a clunky process, to say the least, about... Mm -hmm. Um, trying to get people out and into and into mm. uh, posts. This is something I'm working a lot on in my current uh, role as deputy secretary, trying to mm. make sure our positions, our top positions are, are filled. But again, I just go back to how much time and how much interest and how much enthusiasm the president, secretary of state, national security advisors, and others uh, have for the relationship. You credited me with success. I appreciate that. I will just say we have an incredible team here, um, incredible locally employed staff mm -hmm. uh, who propel this relationship forward. And, and I would say Ambassador Garcetti and the team are doing a, f a, a fabulous job. Uh, the American administration, the American uh, business community, they seem to be very bullish on or they appear to be, it's quite clear, bullish about endorsing robust ties with India. But the left-leaning civil society is very critical about the American administration wanting to do more business, more security-related business with India. How do the two, how do you see the two? Yeah, I don't, I, I guess I don't see it exactly that way mm -hmm. um, from my vantage point. And again, I've seen this, you know, through multiple phases over over 20 or 25 years, I, I see generally a very pro-U.S.-India posture. Um, yes, it's from a business point of view, but when I go around to universities as well and talk to university presidents and deans and others, they want to deepen the education partnership. When I talk to NGOs in the United States, they want to deepen the relationship with civil society here. So I don't see people saying you shouldn't go do the following. When people have concerns, they certainly raise them. And again, that gets back to 
two friends ought to be able to come to the table, talk about all those things that are working, and also talk about those things on both sides where there are concerns. And we do that today. And I'm, you know, that is the sign of a very mature and dynamic, uh, frankly, successful relationship. The read in India is that, you know, it's it's difficult for Indians to fathom as to why uh, America doesn't crack down on separatists, on Khalistanis who issue threat towards India, towards the Indian prime minister, attack the Indian consulates um, and deface places of worship. For Indians, it is like, why can America not understand this? Why can America not uh, deal with this problem? Yeah, look, we've, you know... It, it, for those who engage in violence or any attacks, they're held completely accountable. And our, I will say our diplomatic security team has done a, a very uh, thorough and important job in, in ensuring not only Indian diplomats, but all those diplomats posted in the United States are safe and secure. And there's no higher priority for us, for the Secretary of State, and we will continue to do that. Um, look, do we have... Uh, when people say things, and we each have uh, different rules when it comes to free speech, we have to assess where does that, where is the line crossed into conduct. But we won't tolerate uh, any violence or any um, kind of harassment directed at, at officials, and we will crack down on it where the law allows us to do it, and we have done it, and we will continue to do it. But you've been reading Indian media. I mean, you can. It's quite apparent for everybody to see that uh, that um, Indians find it very difficult to fathom as to why Gurpatwan Singh, a person who's been designated as a terrorist in India, why is he allowed to still function um, and conduct his activities, uh, which are clearly secessionist, encouraging secessionists in India. Yeah, I'm not going to get into specific cases, mm -hmm. but I just just kind of go back to what I said about, okay. you know, um, we have to operate within the law, and we do. And when people cross that line, they will be held accountable. So do you think that relationship is robust enough to withstand uh, this current uh, problem which has occurred, which is the allegations that India was involved in an alleged attempt to eliminate uh, um, an, an Indian terrorist but a U.S. Uh, national uh, in the U.S.? Look, the, we raised the concerns with the Indian government at the most senior levels. They took it seriously. They've launched an investigation. And we look forward to continuing to hear back from the Indian authorities about what they've what they found. But it's, it's a very important issue, and it's being addressed. Uh, addressed at, in what manner? Like well, I, as I understand, there is a, a committee of inquiry that's looking into this and investigating, and we would expect to hear... In the U.S.? No, here in here in India. India. Here in India. And we would expect to hear back uh, as to what has been discovered and who's been held accountable for the activities. Because, you know, uh, there was this... 2023, there was multi-sectoral uh, work which was done by India and U.S. in collaborations. It was all in an upward trajectory. And then suddenly this thing happens towards the second half of the year. And then relationships slide down by December because of this... Do you I see that? I haven't you don't seen, see that. I haven't seen that. Again, I mm -hmm. think we have to unpack some of these things. That was a this is a serious mm. issue. It mm. is being addressed, will be addressed. So let that proceed. But again, I'm here seeing all these incredible um, 
kind of companies and innovators and progress in the relationship, which is also taking place at the same time. So we've got to be able to handle multiple sets of issues at the same time, some of which may hmm. be very difficult. Hmm. Um, I'll get into the defense aspect. You know, the transfer of uh, critical defense technology um, India has asked uh, the U.S. to remove the the stringent hurdles, which includes uh, complicated rules and regulations. Uh, is that progressing? Oh, it's progressed over, again, over 20 years. When I think back to where we were in the early 2000s, we had no defense trade, zero, between mm -hmm. the U.S. and India. Now the number is somewhere $24, 25000000000 billion in uh, goods and technology that have been transferred but now we're in a whole different phase, which is about co-production and co-development, which by definition means technology is being transferred. We've reformed our export control laws very significantly. Now, we still care about where that technology ends up, where uh, the intellectual property ends up, and we have to make sure it's protected and preserved. And that's exactly the kind of assurances that we've gotten back from the Indian system. So I actually see a system that's working uh, the U.S. and India are major defense partners, a status we don't have with any other country in the world. We are building this incredibly um, kind of robust defense relationship. When I go and see the defense exercises that our two militaries do together, it's very heartening. It's very inspiring. It's very sophisticated at every level. And that, that is a good thing, and that should reassure people. It an area of concern also is when uh, India says that the weapon systems and uh, platforms that uh, America gives Pakistan, that can end up with China and reverse technology can be used. So when you were talking about where does it end up, it could end up with China via Pakistan. I just think you have to look at the trajectory of, of where we are on this defense relationship and where we are on the U.S.-Pakistan defense relationship. We have an important uh, relationship with Pakistan, but we in no way or anywhere remotely close to what we're doing with India on the defense partnership. They're not even in the same category. Master Verma, are you going to uh, Maldives and Sri Lanka? Uh, what is on the schedule there? Well, China, kind of, kind of like here, full, full set of meetings. No, look, in this job as uh, Deputy Secretary of State for Management, I also spend a lot of time with our teams, making sure they have what they need. But yes, we will do the full set of bilateral meetings and foreign policy meetings uh, these are important relationships, bilateral relationships, and so we will take stock of where we are. We will try to take each of those relationships to the next level. We will talk about our Indo-Pacific strategy, which is very important, and we will reinforce the things that matter, the rules-based order and, and standing up for democratic principles. We will look to increase our trade connectivity. We will look to increase our security cooperation where we can. Uh, so there's a lot uh, on the agenda, and I'm looking forward to the visits. In conclusion, I'm just going to read out a quote. Uh, Atul Kashrap had said this when he was U.S. Chief of Mission in Sri Lanka and Maldives when you were here. Yeah. And uh, I found this quote and I, I really liked it. It says, it's a source of pride for Indian Americans that Rich Verma became the first American of Indian descent to serve as United States Ambassador to India. He's his posting highlighted how so many Indian Americans are ably and loyally serving the United States in expanding and strengthening bilateral relations between the world's two great democracies. Rich, like all Indian Americans in the bureaucracy, is in bipartisan politics and in business, shares our passionate commitment to seeing our 1.6 billion citizens forge an unbeatable partnership to 
advance the prosperity and security of both our countries and the entire world, create good jobs for our citizens and strengthen pluralistic democ democratic values and transparent rules-based order across the Indo-Pacific region. Wow, that's so nice. I didn't he even know this. he said that. So yeah, he said this about that. you, yeah, and I asked him on the podcast too. Uh, <laughs> and because both of you have kind of similar uh, experiences as yeah. expat Indians. So I just wanted a concluding remark from you about this. Look, I, um, I've been very blessed in my career. Uh, again, when I think about what made this possible, though, it is the hard work and sacrifice of so many other people. And again, I go back to my mother and father, which took such big risks, and, and they worked so hard for us. But I would say, you know, the fact that my mother, this incredible person, product of partition, school teacher, my father also educator, fought for Indian independence, uh, could show up in the United States with almost next to nothing. My dad tells a great immigrant story of showing up in 1963 with $14 and a bus ticket. The fact that his son could come back to India as the U.S. ambassador, could rise to be the deputy secretary of state, that is a long shot of long shots. That is a lightning strike. It is also a very American story. In many mm -hmm. ways, it is a very Indian story. It's about um, rising up through the ranks. I now feel um, a very special obligation to make sure that same opportunity exists for other people, for all the other people who are coming up uh, behind me. That means speaking up for people who may not have a voice, speaking up for people who may feel like they're on the outer edges a little bit. And so we have an obligation now uh, to make sure others can be able to have that pathway that I've been afforded. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for everything that they did, for all those people that supported our family and have supported me. And I'm grateful that I've been able to work on this relationship and see it prosper in the way that it has. Wishing you all the best, Ambassador Thank Verma. You. Thank you so much for coming to Thank our podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for watching or listening to this edition of the ANI podcast with Smita Prakash. Do like or subscribe on whichever channel you have seen this or heard this. Namaste, Jai Hind.